You're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. This month, Andrew will take us through how we can use biosignatures to search for life beyond our planet. Hugh will put a lens to planet discovery and explore an Einsteinian quirk of physics. And I will go through the latest in exoplanetary news. But first, let's meet our exocasters. Andrew Rushby analyzes the planetary habitability and studies the early climate of the Earth at NASA Ames in California. Uh, Hugh Osborne hunts for transiting exoplanets, normally from the University of Warwick in the UK, but this month he's reporting from the field at ESO's La Silla Observatory, high in the Chilean Atacama Desert. Thanks, Andrew. And introducing the show, we had Hannah Wakeford, who studies the clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C. Now, Andrew's going to take us through what biosignatures to look for when we're searching for life on other worlds. Thanks, Hugh. So, whether they admit it or not, one of the main reasons scientists are so interested in planets beyond our own solar system is because they have the potential to support life, perhaps even of the complex or intelligent variety. Uh, but how would we be able to find this life or, or at least prove that it exists conclusively? Um, as you might know, if you listen to Exocast frequently, our instruments are already kind of already pushed to the limit in discovering these planets in the first place. Uh, and at this stage, anyway, traveling interstellar distances for follow-ups of observations, whilst would be very useful, um, would still take hundreds of thousands of years with our current technology. Um, so we need a way of inferring the existence of life from remote observations. And this is where biosignatures come in. So recently I attended a meeting in Seattle that sought to assess the current understanding of, of biosignatures uh, and our ability to find them. Um, and what follows from here on is a bit of a summary of that, I guess. So the first thing to probably cover is, is what a biosignature is. Um, and it's pretty broad because a biosignature is, is an observation or a combination of observations that provides possible evidence of extant, so currently living, or extinct life. Uh, so this evidence could range from, from certain molecules or, or elements or uh, biologically produced substances all the way up to massive land surface features and even alien radio signals on the, on the far extreme. Um, however, the unambiguous detection and identification of a biosignature is, is pretty difficult uh, and still pretty controversial as well because the evidence has to be considered within the context uh, in which it was discovered or collected. We can't it's, it's very difficult to rule out false positives at this stage. So this means that before we can be sure that the observation or the suite of observations we've collected are definitely biosignatures, we have to find out as much as we possibly can about the planet or the environment uh, in which it was found to ensure that our potential discovery is not evidence of an as of yet undiscovered abiotic pathway. Um, so ideally, if we, if we could hypothetically travel to another planet, uh, maybe outside of our solar system and investigate its surface for life, we'd look for a couple of things. And I'm sure you can imagine the kind of things we, we might want to want to find straight out of the ship. So for example, direct observation. This is going to be the, the most 
convincing piece of evidence. If we were to go to another planet and find a complex organism wiggling or hopping or squirming across the planet, I think most people would be pretty convinced by that. Um, but, uh, you know, bringing it back, back to science and less to sci-fi, we could even look for microscopic features and determine whether they look or behave like cells. Uh, of course, this does infer a certain bias into how we we think life is built and how it might be built on other planets, but that's at this stage is, is still unfortunately necessary. So there's lots of other things we could look at in the environment. Um, if we were to go to Mars, for example, there's 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 a number of ways we can investigate the, the environment to discover if there's extant or extinct life on the surface. For example, we could look for, as I said, direct observation of actual life. We could look for fossilized artifacts of life. Um, or the, the, the products of life, for example, biological molecules, or even the degradation products of biological molecules. So for example, here on Earth, we know that um, lipids, which are used in many organisms to store energy, break down over time and leave behind very um, specific uh, molecules called alkanes or steranes or hopanes. And if we were to find something like that, uh, we, we might be able to infer that um, a biological mechanism could have produced them, um, which would be great. However, we don't have the luxury just yet of being able to go to other planets, certainly none outside of our solar system. So we have to fall back on our understanding of physics and of chemistry and of Earth's biology in order to help us detect potential alien life from afar. Usefully, we can peer into planet's atmospheres to determine what they're made of. And we have discussed this on Exocast before. Um, but at this stage, the technique is still is still pretty limited to large worlds. Um, however, future missions uh, might be able to conduct spectroscopy uh, on smaller planets, uh, which are more likely to host life. To this end, uh, the most famous biosignature, uh, or at least the one that's been studied in the most detail, um, is the existence of both oxygen and methane in the atmosphere of a planet. Um, so this was first advanced by uh, James Lovelock of, of Gaia Hypothesis fame or infamy, depending on which way you want to look at it. Um, and uh, it's identified as, a, as a, a key signal of thermodynamic disequilibrium, which just means that the atmosphere isn't in, in steady state or that isn't quite finished reacting together. Um, and this is because oxygen is, uh, is an oxidizing gas, while methane is a reducing gas. Um, so in the same atmosphere, we would expect these two species to react pretty vigorously with each other. Um, so therefore, if we were to find evidence of both of those gases in appreciable amounts, we might come to the conclusion that an active source has to exist to replenish one or both of those gases in the atmosphere of the Earth, at least. The primary source for both oxygen and methane is biological. So oxygen is a byproduct of photosynthesis, of course, and methane as a waste product of methanogens who live in the anoxic depths of the ocean or in cow's guts, eating hydrogen and carbon dioxide and pooping out CH4. Uh, so this is great. This is a simple test that we can carry out as soon as we have the imaging technology to find oxygen and methane, right? Well, unfortunately not. Well, not quite, at least. We now know that there are previously undiscovered means of making an oxygen-rich atmosphere without life, uh, which could be termed a false positive. So researchers at the um, Virtual Planetary Laboratory, which is based at the University of Washington, found that around low mass red dwarf stars, where we spend a lot of our time looking for planets, the higher levels of ultraviolet light, relative to the sun anyway, um, breaks apart atmospheric CO2, uh, and the liberated oxygen molecules can then form O2. So we'd also expect the, this radiation coming um, from the star to split water in the atmosphere, 
the hydrogen molecule then being very light can rise to the top of the atmosphere and escape, which would leave just the O2 behind. So now we know, well, we think that very high levels of O2 um, are actually considered a potential anti-biosignature, i.e. evidence that life, as we know it anyway, can't exist under those conditions. So as with most things in science, it's not it's not uh, black and white. There's, there's a lot of subtlety to the uh, environmental context. So I think the take home message from the meeting was um, to urge caution and to look for a, a system science holistic approach to biosignature research in preparation for the future generations of telescopes so that when they're online, we can be ready to interpret the results that might come, come from the um, instruments. Uh, and again, I think this just goes to show that unless we can figure out more about the planetary and stellar environment and how it shapes, influences and is influenced by biology, life elsewhere might slip under our radar. Wow, that's an absolutely fascinating subject. Like that's <laughs> Okay, question. What would you say personally you think the timeline is? Um well that was something that seemed to be skirted around quite a lot at the meeting. We had instrumentationists there who are going to be the people who are building these telescopes and even they wouldn't commit uh, to a particular time. I think it's because we need to first address um, what it is we're going we're gonna to focus on. Um, I'm sure in a, in a future exocast we might discuss um, atmospheric spectroscopy in a bit more detail, um, particularly when it pertains to certain molecules, but different molecules in the atmosphere have, uh, have different uh, wavelength bands that we might want to focus on to detect them. And Unfortunately, it can be quite difficult to get up to those wavelength bands and you might have to sacrifice some resolution spatially for spectral resolution. Um, so there was a lot of lots of disagreement and arguments, uh, I think, <laughs> as, as is always the case, right? Um, That's the best part of meetings. <laughs> sure, sure. And I you know, sat at the sidelines and just drank it all in. Uh, and it seems people are very excited about James Webb because we're going to be getting to the point now where this is a realistic possibility. Um, and certainly by the next generation of telescopes, we're, we're hoping that we'll be able to conduct atmospheric spectroscopy to, to the, the level that we'd need to, to rule out some of these biosignatures at least. Um, but yeah, I don't want to speculate. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and get you to speculate again. Then. <laughs> so you mentioned the problem with oxygen and methane, but um, if, you, if you had amazing resolution and, and you had studied a habitable planet in detail, what would it take for you to say this planet has almost certainly has life? What, what, what biosignatures would, uh, would be required in your eyes? More than just oxygen and methane? Or? Okay, I think one of the other important factors that came out of that meeting was the combination of biosignatures. To have oxygen and methane in the atmosphere alone might not be enough to convince people, given what we found about potential false positives. But if we were to find also a, a, a spectral feature or a surface feature that might indicate that there was photosynthesizing organisms, for example, that would the be- red a red edge. A red edge, yeah, exactly. That would be a very strong indicator that when taken in combination, we could say this is, this is a much more likely result. So it's, it's about quality and quantity, I think, and, and finding enough uh, of, a, of a mix of the two to, to be really sure. Um, I, I still think it would it would take actual images of a of a wiggling or alien before a lot of people would be completely convinced. Uh, I guess if you started finding oxygen and methane around lots of planets, lots more planets than you might think, 
could be having this abiotic process going on, you might be able to statistically say, okay, some of these have to be life. Absolutely. And there was there was a strong drive definitely towards the data driven element of, of biosignature detection. As you say, if we can characterize loads of terrestrial planets, some of which we would never consider to be habitable, and yet we find potential biosignatures in their in their atmospheres frequently, then there's clearly there's clearly something up that we haven't considered yet. So it's it's just another case of, of more data, always more data. And I will defer to the observers and instrumentation lists for that. And now for this month's concept, Hugh is going to talk about how we can find planets using a quirk of relativity. Hugh? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we talk a lot about um, other techniques of finding planets on this podcast, like transiting and radial velocity and even direct imaging. But but microlensing has barely got a word in edgeways so far. So I thought I'd, I'd set that right and talk a little bit about uh, the runt of the uh, technique sort of litter. Um, so one of the key ideas of the theory of relativity, which Einstein developed in 1918, was that the force of gravity is actually the result of mass distorting space-time. And you can think of this as the famous balls on a bedsheet idea. So if you place a mass on a stretchy piece of fabric, that sheet will curve around the mass. And when you roll another ball across the sheet, its path is deflected or it orbits that mass because of the, the uh, distortion in, um, in, the, in the 2D sheet. And this is basically what happens in 3D um, with space-time. But what Einstein also realized was that light can also be bent by large masses. And in 1919, Arthur Eddington went to St. Helena to try and prove that this was the case. And he observed during a total eclipse some stars that were very close to the sun and normally completely unobservable. And he was able to measure that slight bending of light. And this confirmed general relativity. Um, but if you, if you extend that concept a bit further, you might be able to picture that if light from a different star can be bent inwards from one side of a mass, there must also be a point where light can be bent by both sides, effectively giving two or more images of a distant star. And that increases the amount of light. This is effectively a lens. Uh, in the case of microlensing, these images, you don't actually uh, individually see them, uh, but instead you just measure the amount of light that is increased. Um, but observing such an event is really unlikely. So stars, they're always moving, but the chance that a foreground star and a distant star line up perfectly in line is minuscule. So one good way of increasing your chances of seeing this sort of thing is by observing the region with the most stars. So that means observing the centre, or bulge, of the Milky Way galaxy. Um, but even there, the chances of any star being lensed is, is one in a million. But some searches got underway in the early 90s, and they began to find dozens of microlensed stars per year. So I might hear you ask, what, what does this have to do with planets? Um, you might initially think that these lenses might help us find the light of distant planets, but actually, planets are more massive than they are bright, which is a sentence I didn't think I'd ever say, but, but what I mean is that the lensing effect from the mass of a planet is much greater than the magnification of its light. Um, so what happens is, as the star moves very close alignment with the background star, the light from that background star gets lensed and its brightness increases, sometimes up to 100 times more than, than its original flux, and over a, a, a sort of 10 to 100 day period. And then if, the, if this foreground star also has a planet, as the planet passes close to the background star, the mass causes another magnification, so another little bump 
on the light curve, as we call it. Um, and it's much shorter and much smaller amplitude than, than the one for its parent star, but we can observe this nonetheless. And in 2003, the Ogle and NOAA surveys found their first microlensing planet. It was a 1.5 Jupiter mass world and about 3 AU from its star. So it's quite similar to Jupiter, actually. Um, you may have heard me in previous episodes moan about how uh, stars that are too faint and too distant, uh, we can't do anything with them, we can't follow them up. Well, with a magnitude of 19.7, which is 250 times fainter than Pluto, uh, and 70% of the way to the galactic center, this first Ogle planet really shows the problems that microlensing faces. Uh, it's fair to say that Ogle won't be finding any planets we can actually study in great detail anytime soon. And in fact, sometimes the star of the planet is around is, is so faint that we can't even resolve it. We can't even tell what the star is like, let alone observe the planet again. Um, all we really get is the mass ratio between the host star and the planet and the distance between them. One way we have been able to break that uh, degeneracy, as we call it, is by using spacecraft that are separated in space. Um, so the light that is microlensed is actually an incredibly narrow beam. And even being 0.5 AU, so half of Earth's orbit away from the Earth, can give very different perspectives on the same microlensing event. Uh, and that improves if you see these, these two sort of parallax, two like binocular angles of the same event, that improves the amount of information you get hugely. So you, in fact, uh, K2, which is what I actually work on, uh, is about 0.4 AU from the Earth. And this was recently used to observe the, the galactic bulge and look for microlensing events. And although the data has only just come out, it looks like it's found four, four bound planets and seven free-floating planets in just a single two-and-a-half-month campaign. One of the interesting things there is that microlensing can actually find free-floating planets, as I just mentioned. So these are worlds that are either formed like stars but with sort of stunted growth, um, or they're thrown out of their solar systems during formation. Um, so with all the other techniques, they're which look at stars and um, look at the indirect effect of planets on their stars, these, these planets would never be found. Um, but microlensing actually found these free-floating worlds in abundance. And they worked out that for every galaxy, for every star in our galaxy, there's around 1.8 free-floating massive planets, and which was completely unexpected and still causes lots of head-scratching among planet formation theorists. And another really interesting thing that microlensing can do is open up an entirely different window into exoplanet systems. So you might have heard us talk before about how transits and even radial velocities are actually mostly sensitive to large planets that are close to their star. And direct imaging also has a similar um, problem in that it can only find massive planets that are very young. With microlensing, though, you can find planets of all masses and at all separations from their star. And with future instruments, um, but it really could be all masses. So anything from Mars-sized worlds at the distance of sort of Venus all the way out to Neptune. These, these could all be found from microlensing. And these future instruments, they might sound like a long way off, but actually they're almost already here. So WFIRST is a telescope that's going to launch in the 2020s, and this will be able to do that. Observation break. Sorry, the telescope was calling me. Sounds very needy. <laughs> it is. Extremely high-pitched. Is it okay? Did you break your observations? Don't break the observations. No, it's just when the star's quite faint, 
it doesn't know where to point, so I have to click. And then I wait another half an hour and have to click again. It's quite boring, really. Oh, you observe is <laughs> hands-on science right there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, W first, right. Yeah, so W first, what's that going to do for us? So yeah, so it's going to launch in the 2020s, so only, only 10, 15 years away. Um, and it'll be able to do, it'll be able to actually spot all of these, um, all of these planets that I was saying. So it'll find around, it'll find around 300 Earths at 0.5 AU and beyond from its star. So this, this will tie down the number of habitable Earth analogues, so a statistic we call Eta Earth, much better than Kepler ever has. And it will also be able to detect up to 40 free-floating Earths, although we really don't know how many Earth-sized free-floating planets there are out there. Um, so it will be able to, to, to find, find out just how many there are. And in, in a few simulations, it showed that you could detect a planet to 27 sigma that was 5 AU from its star that was only two moon masses in size. That's 2.5% the mass of Earth. And given that we currently struggle to detect even super-Earths with, with current techniques, especially at the distances of, of 5 AU from their star. This is, you know, a, a real order of magnitude, like, deeper than we've ever been able to search solar systems before. And if that wasn't enough, it should also find 100,000 transiting planets. So when I heard all that uh, at a conference over the summer, I really had to admit, maybe I'm in the wrong field, you know. Um, so maybe the future's not bright after all. Maybe it's faint and only observable thanks to general relativity. Wow. You've actually, I'm surprised, you've kind of sold me a little bit. I mean, it's a statistical, it's still another statistical method, right? So even WFIRST itself is going to be able to find transiting planets. These aren't going to be micro-lensing ones. These are going to be from another the, observation. The transiting planets would also be extremely faint. I mean, micro-lensing effectively will be, it's the same process as, tran as searching for transits. You yes, point your but telescope I'm saying you're not going to get both, just... a micro-lens uh, and transit. Uh, no. No. Uh, so the, the planets that get microlensed won't tr probably won't transit. But the yeah. but from what you're saying, the the gravitational lensing studies are actually a really great statistical tool rather than anything else, rather than a characterization yeah. tool, a really good statistical understanding of planet populations. Yeah, definitely. And they'll they'll be able to get right down to the limit of what we can even call a planet. You know, something that's two moon masses. So um, so yeah, we'll we'll, we'll stop to be able to find these things with W first. So that's quite incredible. Yeah, the dwarf, dwarf planet regime, definitely. All right. And now Hannah's going to talk a bit about all of the recent exoplanet news from the last month. Okay. Well, it's been another busy month of exoplanets. Um, but to kick it all off, I thought I'd introduce a new science technique proposed by researchers at Oxford University that they've called astrochronology. And this actually looks at the traces of solar storms uh, and the impact they have on the Earth through measurements in tree rings. So looking at the carbon dating of different tree rings. Now, the scientists uh, have proposed this uh, as a study for trying to bring together all of the ancient timelines using science and statistics, which is a really interesting way uh, of doing that. So they say that using the radiocarbon identifiers from different solar storm events, which impact the, the ratio of the carbon in the tree themselves as they are growing and then as the trees get older, more and more layers start forming. Or in papyrus from, from ancient Egypt, um, they can actually help pin down different historical events to each other. So cross timelines from perhaps, you know, 
from Europe and from the Americas or from Asia um, and Europe, pin them together by these solar storm events, which is a really interesting way of looking at it. And they've, they've been using advanced statistical techniques to try and do this. So keep an eye out for that. It's definitely going to be interesting to see uh, what kind of things there are. I know that's not relating to exoplanets, but I thought it was very, very interesting. So moving back to some exoplanet stuff, um, some new characterization results have come out for a hot Jupiter called WASP-43. Stevenson et al. Uh, have done new Spitzer phase curve observations, and they show consistency actually between the two wavelength channels in Spitzer and some previous data that's been recorded using the Hubble Space Telescope. And this is the first multi-facility constraint of a hot Jupiter using phase-dependent emission, so, so light that's actually coming from the planet itself, um, which is a fantastic kind of advance in, in the characterization studies. However, there's still a slight discrepancy between the observational phase curve results and the predicted measurements from GCM models, so global circulation models, which you use to predict what you, you expect to see from our observations. And the night side is of the planets is expected to be brighter than has been measured. So the possibility of this suggests that there's large kind of hemispheric level clouds which are blocking that thermal heat coming from the planet themselves. So that's going to reduce the amount of flux that we would see as we see the night side of the planet. So that's one scenario, but more observations of not only this planet to understand if there's any time variability on that, um, but also other hot Jupiters to really understand the the atmospheric dynamics we should expect for such hot, tidally locked worlds uh, are needed really to, to bring this into, into a better information-rich area. So um, as always, I will say bring on the data uh, for, for everything and anything that we can. So moving on, since the last exocast, even more planets have been discovered outside of our solar system. That number's just getting bigger and bigger every single month. And some of the ones that uh, were published on Archive include new inflated hot Jupiter from the Kelt survey, at least two more WASP planets, and three more HAT planets. So these are all ground-based surveys, um, and they've been, they've been slogging along and getting those planets from all of the year's worth of data that they've been looking for them. Actually, the WASP team are almost at 150, I think, in terms of the number of planets they've discovered. It's definitely the most prolific of any ground-based survey um, that is, is looking for these transiting planets. Yeah, we, we have uh, 160 on, the, on a list waiting to be published nice. at the moment, I can tell you. But... That's absolutely brilliant. More planets, more things to follow up, hopefully. But I want to focus on a few others specifically. Um, and one is the discovery from K2 of a transiting Neptune found in the Beehive Cluster. So the cluster is otherwise known as Presepe, and it's an open cluster in the constellation of Cancer. And back in 2012, two planets were discovered uh, in this cluster orbiting separate stars using radial velocity measurements. But this is the first time one has been found transiting in a cluster. Um, what's interesting is that the planets that have been discovered in clusters seem to be different from those orbiting what we call field stars, stars that are uh, not associated with the movement of other stars. This suggests that the environmental impact on planet formation is very, very important. So the, the way and the place in which you grow up uh, as a planet 
can have an impact on what kind of planet you are, what kind of uh, what kind of mass you're going to have, what kind of stellar environment um, is impacting the atmosphere as well. So that's gonna. It's certainly a really interesting field to be searching for these kinds of planets, and I think that um, it's it's gonna be something that we really need to try and understand as we get more and more information about these planets, and and potentially trying to understand how they form in the first place. Now, unfortunately, this star is far too faint for detailed follow-up, um, but it's the first in a potential new kind of regime for transiting planets to be observed, and and maybe. At some point, we'll find a cluster star with a transiting planet that we can do some atmospheric follow-up on. Um, and then finally, I wanted to mention something that bugs me a little bit, but I'm very passionate about. And it's it's press rumor, the impact it has on science and the perception of science to the public. And over the past week or so, reports have been leaked into the media anonymously by a German publication, Der Spiegel, of a new planet found orbiting one of our closest neighbours, Proxima Centauri, um, with headlines ranging from rumoured exoplanet, maybe closest Earth-like planet, to scientists have found an Earth-like planet orbiting the closest star. These are two wildly different titles, and if you read the articles, they explain exactly the same things that have been leaked by Der Spiegel and don't actually have any detail on measurements that have been made. Now, with an article which claims in the title that scientists have found a planet, then going on to discuss how none of this is confirmed and when they question people, they replied with no comment, this is a very dangerous regime of clickbait which I absolutely hate, and it has absolutely no place in scientific context whatsoever. Um, so that's been irking me a tiny little bit. But to give you some background on what kind of information uh, that they have and what kind of information we actually know about uh, this star so far. So Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf star, and it's thought to be associated with the Alpha Centauri AB binary system. So that would make it a... a triple star system. However, that requires it to have a certain limited orbital period and it's still not known whether this fits within that kind of um, that kind of motion. But if you remember a few exocasts back, Hugh described how a planet can be debunked um, due to false positives in the results and, and gave a number of examples. And one of these was the Alpha Centauri binary system where there was a which are much brighter stars for a start, um, which it has has now been debunked as an actual planet orbiting uh, this brighter star. So this potential new planet uh, was found by the same telescope, um, apparently pushing the limits of the technology, which they'd already done for this first claim of the Alpha Centauri A planet. Um, so... That, that kind of puts a little bit of a, a niggle in, Do is this possible? It's a much smaller, it's a much dimmer star. Is this is this possible to push the limits so far that, that you can corroborate this kind of information? And I'm not suggesting that it's not a true claim. We don't know yet. I want to find out. Um, and that's, that's the beauty of science. We, we want to find out. It, if this is true, this is fantastic. I will happily wait for the scientific data, however, to see and not speculate on it prior 
to its release. And I think that's one of the things that's really dangerous in the media is, the, is this prior speculation without having any evidence. And it damages the view that the public has on that data that we get. Um, and even if the information is real, um, they have to live up to these claims that have been made. If the data is not real, then their reputation as scientists and their reputation in the public, or in fact, just science in general, the representation that it's done to the public is damaged by not living up to everybody's expectations because they don't truly get conveyed the scientific method and scientific process that was required to actually get these kinds of results. So mini rant almost over. Um, but <laughs> it's really, really important that we get this right as science communicators and try and actually push the idea uh, of this scientific method that we have and how we get to these results. Now, to finish up, many scientists are rightfully incredibly excited about this potential scientific result. And I agree in some cases embargoes can be dumb. Uh, for an already peer-reviewed and accepted paper, great, that's a scientific result. Um, but a little healthy scepticism needs to be in place for all of this. Um, and I hope, I really hope that they have lots and lots of nice data to prove me wrong. Uh, and we can report on those findings in the next Exocast. But that's that's just my little rant on why I think it's so damaging for, for this kind of event to happen. And, and why I'm a little bit skeptical about all of these these claims that come out of the media because you need to see the scientific data and that's hard for us as science communicators to get across sometimes but it really really does sell these results and the more we can sell these results the more exciting it becomes thanks Hannah. that was a that was a great rant actually it touched on a lot of really important aspects about how science is communicated i think um do you think there's it's a confidence level issue that Dis Beagle was satisfied by the results that they saw um, more so than we would be? We would have different standards, you know. We'd want three sigma detections, whereas they might be happy with you know some backroom coffee room chat and still consider that to be to be viable. How do we communicate the difference in 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 quality standards? I guess as well as the the, the actual method and technique for doing science. So it's an anonymous source from this uh, this German journal. Um, I can't speculate as to what kind of uh, level this person was, what kind of experience they have. Um, and to be honest, it, it definitely does come with that experience. There are many amazing scientific journalists out there, absolutely amazing. Uh, some more credible than the scientists they're reporting on. Um, <laughs> but that's the thing is that we, as scientists trust our data, our papers, our analysis to professionals who are able to communicate that uh, slightly better than we can. They know the audience that they're aiming for. They they understand the different uh, concepts there. And I think that's what this is. It's, it's, it's quite possibly just a breakdown in that communication and it's gone out too early. If they, if they do have these scientific results that prove those headlines, I mean, bring it on, but no one is willing to comment. Almost all articles say that we tried to contact Der Spiegel and no one is available for comment. Um, and the original 
information came from a press release, uh, which uh, it seems like was accidentally let out. So when they're quoting someone anonymously, it's not someone they're communicating with and constantly talking to and asking questions. It's an original document that somehow made it out to the general media. I think another problem is that there's, there's almost three stages of which a scientific result gets hyped up, right? There's three levels. And scientists are kind of guilty. They're the first stage because they have the data and they want to oversell it and they want, they want people to think that it's better than it is. And, and, but they do it respectfully. You know, they might just make, make the title a bit more snazzy than it might otherwise be. And then you get the science journalists who are writing about it and they try and make it sound slightly better than, than, the, than the scientists made it. And then you have the headline writers who are the worst and they'll just say, um, like, like the headlines you, you, you read out, the, um, you know, planet discovered. And then actually the text that the science journalist has written is, is watered down. It doesn't say anything of the, of the type. So at each stage, and then the, people, the thing that people read is the headline. That's the thing that people remember. And it might well be, but by the time you've gone through these three stages, you're, you're, you're not even touching the science anymore. It's completely hyped out of shape, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I think Proxima Centauri, I hope... The hype, the, or the, the discovery, if it, if and when it happens, can live up to the hype, you know. I guess. We, but I am worried. I'm worried that it won't. <laughs> I guess we should we should say that the hype is there because it would be the closest discovered, confirmed exoplanet to the Earth, right? That's the reason that there's this hype, which I don't think we've we've touched on yet. Am I correct? Yeah. In saying the, that? No, you are correct in yeah. saying that that would be yeah. the the closest you could possibly. And the anonymous yeah. source suggests it's habitable and earth-like as well. And well, those, that's another thing. And it's, for, uh... it's, it's, a re- it's a beautiful buzzword to use, but we recently had the same challenge uh, when we were announcing the characterization we did on the TRAPPIST-1 planets. So the TRAPPIST-1 planets are both Earth-sized. They have the same radius as the Earth. Um, but we were debating going backwards and forwards between our press office and, and the scientists, just kind of going, no, you can't say that. No, it's not. We're you in the paper. We use the term terrestrial, and we define it. We define it as me meaning something that has a likely has a surface and a density which is consistent with something that has a solid structure to it. And that's you know that's the thing. None of these are saying they're all saying Earth-like, but they don't define what Earth-like means to them. Um, and that's something that we need to be really careful about. I mean it. It, it lowers the hype. It damages our egos. All scientists have egos to some level. But it's, it's more true to what we're doing. And the more true we are to what we're doing, when we do eventually find that ridiculous and awesome Earth-like planet, it will be even better because it will be something unique rather than crying wolf continuously for years and years. Couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah thought about this far too much <laughs> I, do, I do worry that that if you talk to anyone um uh, about earth 2.0 whatever it is and when when we actually find a nearby earth we can actually observe they'll the ordinary person in the public will just assume we found it already because there's been so many media headlines saying earth-like planet discovered earth 2.0 discovered and it's just it's not true yet and but everyone everyone just thinks it is already it's it's yeah it will make any discovery of Earth 2.0 like so much le- get less credit than it deserves. I think. Yeah. That announcement will be made to an empty room, and it will be our fault. Well, not our fault. Yeah. The journalists' fault. <laughs> <laughs> Press office's fault. 
Everyone's fault. Everyone's Everyone's fault. fault. Okay, so now, Hugh, it's your turn again to pick a planet to join our Exocast family. Thanks, Emma. And talking of close planets and and interesting ones, I I thought I'd go with with another one. And I have picked B to pick B, so B to pick Taurus B. Um, So this is a directly imaged planet, so it's it's, uh, much larger than Jupiter. It's about 5 to 12 Jupiter masses, and it's around a young star that's um, only 22 parsecs away, so one of the closest planets. It's also around one of the brightest stars, so this star is third magnitude. Um, So if you go out in the southern hemisphere, you can see it shining above you, which is unusual for a a star hosting a a planet, really. Um, It was found in 2008 with BLT, um, directly imaged, as, as I said, and it's been studied since then with, with new generations of instruments such as Sphere and, and GPI, these high-resolution images, and they've been able to directly resolve and image the planet itself, which is it's quite nifty. Um, so we know a lot about it, and we know what it, its orbit does now because we've seen it move around its star, and it's been moving closer and closer to its parent star over the last few years, and actually we think it's going to move um, extremely close to it in 2017. We know it won't quite transit, which is a bit of a shame, but what will cross in front of the star is its hill sphere, and its hill sphere is the region in which um, any material would be gravitationally bound to the planet. And this is a young planet, right? So it's 12 to 20 million years old. So we think around young, large planets, there could well be moons forming. There could well be these disks that, that, um, that uh, stars have when they're young as well. Um, and actually, if you look back in the record, the last time that it transited in, is 1989, so 30 years ago. And there's a couple of days when the flux from B to pit B is slightly less than we might expect. So, in fact, in 2017, there's going to be a lot of telescopes pointed at it at B to pit to try and see if anything transits. And if we do see something, then it could well be that move aside 51 peg and B to pit B was the first uh, planet to be detected, which is quite quite cool. And it's also one of the only planets we know the length of a day on. So uh, because we've been able to, to study it in detail and it's, it's so close and separate from its star, we've been able to measure that there's an eight-hour day, so much faster than any of the planets in our own solar system uh, on this planet. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting planet and, and lots we can study about it. Yeah, I think that was a good choice. Um, and I, I do know that there's going to be a lot of people waiting for that transit. Um, one of the things is that we're not entirely clear on, on when that's going to happen, are we? Or has it been narrowed down a little bit more? I think it's between April 2017 and October, December. I can't remember. That's a long um, time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, a sizable portion of the year. So, I mean, that seems very young, even, even for a recently formed planet. That might not be properly differentiated. We might... I mean, I think in in the, in the solar system we were looking at maybe a hundred million years for Earth's for moon formation, formation. Uh, and then for moon formation, obviously from a collision somewhat later, but all in the same hundred thousand year kind of window. Um, and you said what ten to twenty million? That seems that seems pretty young. Yeah. So I guess it, it's a big planet, and it's um, there's a question as to whether it would have formed in the same way as the as as sort of Earth did from core accretion, or whether it formed from like stars do from gravitational collapse. Um, so I think big planets are more likely to clear out their environment much quicker. Um, but Beta Pic B does still have, or B- the Beta Pic star still has disks that we've also been able to observe around it. Um, 
So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely still forming this planet. So it'll be interesting to see what's around it in, in next year. Okay, that's it for this month. Thanks for listening. Next month, Hugh is going to um, tell us about how we turn a planetary candidate into a bona fide planet. Uh, Hannah is going to discuss clouds and aerosols and hazes, things going on in planetary atmospheres, as well as adopting a new planet into our growing orphanage. Uh, and I will take us through all the latest exoplanet news. Um, and if you can't wait, of course, until next time, you can check out all of our shows on our website, exocast.org, uh, on iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Thanks. See you next time. See you next month. Exocast.